just great to be together again. Um, we're four weeks into a summer series where we're exploring basically the life of Jesus through one um, kind of passage of scripture, John 15. Uh, and the series is called Abiding. And um, it's been just such a blessing to hear some of our Raising Teachers group um, preaching recently. Um, so whether that's Rhiannon or Tom Davis, it's been at this site. Next week we've got Dave Brown and then Katie Thorne preaching here. And that's just this site, yeah. Um, and at Southbourne, we, you know, we've, we've had Lanray, um, Ben Thompson, I was there last week and I just got so much out of what he brought. And as Lanray said, it's Rachel preaching at Southbourne uh, this morning. And um, yeah, she's gonna smack it out the park. I mean, you should have, you should have really gone there this morning. Um, <laughs> And we've got Pete Roxborough preaching there next week as well. So, yeah, just, just really encouraged by the gifts that God's given the church. And I'm excited to see where that goes. Today we're going to focus in on, on really one verse. Um, but we're going to read this whole passage again. I know we've done that week to week, but to be honest, I don't think we can get enough of it, right? So here it is. I'm going to ask my son Tom uh, just to come up and read that. I'm just here to read the passage so far. <laughs> so it says, I'm the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that you, my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no, has no one than this, to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I, if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give to you. This is my command. Love each other. Thanks, Tom. That's great. Tom's actually going to be back up a bit later just to take uh, a passage of today's talk, so exciting stuff. The verse that I want to focus in on is this one, verse 8. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. I've been a Christian uh, since I was six years old, um, and it's easy for someone like me to look over a passage like this and miss the significance of what's actually being said. For me growing up, I've been used to the idea of sort of architecting or posturing my life in a way to bring glory to God. Um, that's not to suggest that I've nailed that. I am a work in progress, I'm sure like many of you, and I've failed many times. 
But as I've been just preparing this message and considering the kind of predominant narrative of society, it struck me how countercultural this passage is. This is suggesting that the purpose of my life is to glorify someone else. And this may feel a little bit off to some of you, maybe unlike me, maybe you've come to faith a bit later in life, and just the language of this just maybe doesn't sit very well with you. Or maybe you're here today and you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a follower of Jesus, or Jesus doesn't get your allegiance. Um, but for Christians here today, I just wonder if, a bit like me, you're looking at this passage just with fresh eyes again, because the world tells us that the purpose of life is just so different to this. And I want to explore how this passage changes everything for us as individuals, for those that we interact with. And if you're not quite there yet with Christianity, well, my hope is that at least this gives you a full picture of what glorifying God looks like. And that in doing so, you can actually become a fully flourishing, fully satisfied human being. Well, what is glory? It's not really a word that we use that often, um, just out there in the world. I mean, a sunset is glorious, but other than that kind of language, you, you wouldn't find it you know, outside of a religious setting. The dictionary simply defines it as praise, honor, or admiration given to a person. The Bible is way more descriptive, though. You see, glory isn't, it's not a characteristic of God or the worth of God. It's more like a display of his worth. It's his beauty, his holiness, his worthiness going public. His beauty being recognized, his holiness on display. God seeks his own glory. God is actually zealous for his own glory. This passage doesn't necessarily kind of show that in a big way, but let me just quickly show you what I mean. Here in Isaiah 43, verse six to seven, it says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. In Isaiah 49, three, it says, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. God's people exist to bring him glory. In one of the most glorious, there I use the word, passages, and I would say in almost all of the New Testament, Ephesians 1, God says that we are chosen in him for his glory. And even later in that letter, Paul describes the church um, saying that God's intent is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. God is in no way ashamed in seeking his own glory. In fact, it's such a common theme throughout scripture that the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is basically just a collection of doctrines written by these theologians in the 17th century, they're basically trying to answer the question of human existence. What are we here for? And they summarize it like this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We don't seem to like it when people seek their own glory, do we? I mean, it happens a lot, but we don't like it. Have you ever thought why we don't like it? 
I think there are a number of reasons for this, but one would certainly be that we know that everyone is flawed, everyone is broken in some way. And so when someone seeks their own glory, we worry that power has corrupted them, that there is some selfish ambition at play. And as human beings, we aren't able to withstand the pressure and temptation that glory brings to ourselves. That's pretty obvious if you follow anyone who is a celebrity. Why then does God seek his own glory? And why are we also called to glorify him? There is a big difference between us and God. The God of the Bible, our God, is of infinite worth and holiness and beauty and love and goodness, and we are not. We sang about this this morning. God is the most worthy. In fact, he is of ultimate value and worth. Everything else is secondary or worse. And even the closest thing that comes to him, it pales into insignificance. Even the word holy literally means other than. Therefore God, if God was to point at something else in nature that he's created and say, worship that, that would not be for our good. It would be false humility on a global scale. Righteousness is the recognition of true value and esteeming it and enjoying it in proportion to its worth. The opposite of righteousness is what Paul describes in Romans 1 verse 18. When talking about fallen humanity, he says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. But later on he says, claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. God is righteous. And this means that he recognizes he welcomes and loves and upholds with infinite jealousy and energy what is infinitely valuable, namely, the worth of God. God's righteous passion and delight is to display and uphold his infinite, valuable glory. God is not an idolater. He does not obey his first and primary commandment with all his heart and with all his soul and his strength and mind, he delights in the glory of his perfection. The most passionate heart for God in all the universe is God's heart. He remains faithful and righteous by exalting the glory of what is infinitely glorious. What does that mean for us? It means we exalt God. What does it mean for God? It means he exalts God. That all might sound logical to you, but what does giving glory to God, how does it lead to my flourishing and my fullness of life? If you're kind of struggling with, with how that works and how those two things correlate, there's a chance that you've got an image in your mind of what glory, glorifying God looks like. Maybe it's the image of a, a bloodthirsty Greek God a scene of seeing countless worshipers dutifully paying homage, making even, even prostituting themselves and selling their children in order to have their prayers answered. Some sense of nothing being enough to appease the God's appetite. 
The God of the Bible cannot be further from that image. He isn't even in need of our worship. In fact, before the creation of the world, the Trinity was in perfect love and unity. His reason for creating us was to display his glory, but through loving relationship with us, not in dutiful, conscripted worship. His desire is for his glory in our lives, not because of a lack in him, but because of a lack in us. He knows that our ultimate good is found in our worship of that which is ultimately good. The incredible beauty of God is that he is most glorified in our lives when we are most satisfied in him. The theologian John Piper is just so helpful in this. You see, there's a very big difference between delight and duty. Delight confers way more honor than duty does. When someone delights in you, you are honored. When someone dutifully spends time with you because they have to, you are not honored. (laughs) Duty is honored, but you are not. Last Tuesday, um, Rach and I, um, we celebrated our 19th wedding anniversary, which was pretty cool. Thank you very much. Um, So we went out for a meal together, which was really cool. But can you imagine if in that moment, Rachel said to me, it's so nice for us to just get some quality time together. And my reaction being, while I'm your husband, um, I have to spend time with you. (laughs) How, How honored, how honored would she be in that moment? Not very much. I might get a slap in the face as well, I don't know. Um, no, she wouldn't do that, I don't think. Um, <laughs> if instead, I reacted by saying, it's a privilege to be your husband. It's a privilege to get any time with you. She is honored. And that would really be truthful. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. He didn't make us as dutiful beings He made us as relational beings, able to choose him or not choose him. When we delight in his presence, when we love being around him, when we treasure him, he is glorified. You see, God getting glory is not at odds with our joy, with our satisfaction. It's quite the opposite. God knows that the best place for us is connecting to the source of ultimate worth, ultimate goodness, ultimate love and joy and peace. And when we do this, we are fully satisfied. Even in the worst of times, when in the natural, people would expect you just to be a big fat mess, you can know a peace that surpasses understanding because you connected to the true vine. I love Psalm 16, probably one of my favorite um, sort of chapters. And there's, there's a few verses in there which just, just resonate so much with what we're talking about today. In verse two, it says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Verse five says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. You make known to me the path of life 
you will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And in Psalm 37, it says, take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. This is just so crucial for us to take hold of. You see, often we think that we know the true desires of our heart. Maybe it's family, friends, fame, sexual relationships. But God really knows that the delight in him is the only thing that will truly bring satisfaction. The riches of his truth, the power of his indwelling presence, abiding in him, being satisfied in him, finding joy in him will lead to a life of fruitfulness which will glorify and honor him. Our good is not at odds with his glory. Tim said a few weeks ago, God, your plan for your glory is a plan for my good. Do you ever seek the glory of something or someone other than God? Let me put that another way. Is there anything you seek to give you or only God can give you? If I just had that, then my life will have meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and I'll feel secure. There are many ways to describe that sense, but the best way is worship. The Bible calls it idolatry. It's the taking of something that brings an incomplete joy, joy that we find in this world and building our entire life around it. The human heart is an idol factory. And it's not just the ancient Israel that set up other gods. There are counterfeit gods everywhere. All right, I wanna invite my son Tom up. Um, he's gonna be... He's, just, he's gonna spend some time just outlining um, what this looks like in today's culture. So take it away, boy. Thanks, Dad. Um, I want to start this by just reading from the first Samuel chapter seven, verses three and four, where it says, if you're returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and asterisks and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and asterisks and served the Lord only. So why was it that I wanted to read that? Well, because I think it shows quite well the message and response we have to God's glory. The idea of being told directly that we have to get rid ourselves of these foreign gods in our lives. It's probably a good time now to mention the kinds of foreign gods we mean today. These mostly include money, sex, power, and especially social media. And they fall into a category of they're not necessarily wrong on their own, but they can very easily master you and enslave you. And God's glory was very much on display for the Israelites throughout most of their time with him. For example, it would be very foolish of them to seek anything other than God. For example, the escape from Egypt, the parting of the Red Sea, and the destruction of Jericho. And like I said before, it would be absolutely foolish of them to live their lives worshipping anything or anyone other than God who's done these things for them. And, but the thing is, guess, guess what happened? They did just that multiple times. 
And God punishes them for this, and he lets the Ark of the Covenant be taken by the Philistines. God does some vandalism to the Philistine cities with plagues and all sorts of horrible things, and they give the Ark back to the Israelites, and that's when Samuel says what I just read out. Samuel says they need to rid themselves of these foreign gods. When I think of someone ridding themselves of something, I usually think, well, they're going to try and get away from any reminder that it was ever associated with them at all. And, of course, they were told that if they do this, they will be delivered from the Philistines. I'd say that's very good motivation to rid themselves of these gods. Do they do this? Well, actually, fair enough to them. They, they mostly do. They put away the foreign gods. And the best analogy I can think of this is like the wet play cupboard in primary school. They put it in there in case it's a bit of a miserable day and they take them out and they, you know, just distract everyone. And, but they do still serve God, God. And I think that's quite similar to what we do. While it can be very easy to look back at the Israelites and say, wow, that nation just failed loads. At least today we are better than them and we don't fail in the same way. And to say that, I don't think you'd be exactly right, because we fail in almost the exact same category, but just modernized. The best example of this is social media, like I said earlier, and it's, it's so widespread. And when people are engrossed or enslaved by social media, it's likely one of two things are happening. Either they will be worshipping someone else who they've seen and they're like, whoa, you're awesome, I'm going to give all of my energy to you. Or they go, well, surely I'm gonna add, I should add value to myself. And they get others to worship them by posting like every day what they've done, who they were with, and how amazing it was for them. Um, about a year ago, I watched a documentary on Netflix called The Social Dilemma. It's really brilliant, where founders, co-founders, and software programmers of like massive social media platforms, they come together and they, they tell people the way that social media works and how easy it is for you to get stuck in false ideologies and how dangerous the strain on mental health can be. And I thought after watching that, well, it doesn't seem like it's going to social media satisfies any deep need, and in fact, it's a major deficit. So what I've done is I've just deleted all like social media off my phone. <laughs> Thank you. And then also, if I'm on my computer and I've got YouTube in the background, I'll be very careful about what is on because I don't want to get stuck into these dangerous ideologies that you can very easily be. And what the Bible wants us to do is it wants us to rid ourselves of the foreign gods does that mean that we should all take our phones right now, throw them on the floor and crush them under our heels? Does it mean I shouldn't have that computer at home? I mean, I wouldn't be able to do my homework, which would be brilliant. <laughs> well, I'd say it depends on the relationship you have with that thing. Are you, it, are you, is it serving you or are you serving it? Have you become its master and you are using that tool for good and projecting the message of God and all of that, or has that become your master and it is using you to present a message that's not as healthy? Good job, Tom. Massive proud dad moment there. You know, we take 
good things and turn them into ultimate things. We often think that idols are really bad things, but actually that's almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect it to satisfy the deepest needs. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. My kids, my wife, my home, my job, even my church. Receiving acclaim or saving face and social standing, a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty, your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. Anything that holds my ultimate affections, which are reserved for the one of ultimate worth, God. Do you ever pay attention to your daydreams and your nightmares? What do you enjoy imagining? And what do you spend your time fearing most? What are your most unyielding emotions? What makes you uncontrollably angry, anxious, despondent? We even make sacrifices to appease these gods. Social media and approval, we sacrifice our mental health. For beauty, we sacrifice money and time and even nutritional value to our body, which often leads to eating disorders and our mental health, other mental health disorders. And yet we laugh at the pagans for making literal idols of almost anything, sex, beauty, power, but at least they weren't trying to hide the fact that they were worshiping beauty, for instance. Constantly agonizing over appearance, spending inordinate amounts of time and money on it, and foolishly evaluating another person's character based on it. You're worshiping Aphrodite. The sooner you come to call it what it is, the quicker you can move on. Paul says in Philippians 3.8, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. I want Paul's attitude to idols. Are you struggling to rid yourself of idols? Are they enslaving you? The only way Paul was able to say what he said here is because Jesus, he had made Jesus his portion and his cup. He gave up seeking worldly inheritance. The Lord was his inheritance. The world's inheritance was so obscured in his mind and his image from the glory of God that he called them garbage. He chose to delight in the Lord. And does that mean his life was a bed of roses? <laughs> By no means at all. He sacrificed so much for God. But I bet if you asked him, he would say that all of those things led him closer to fullness of life and flourishing than anything the world could offer. He knew joy in the midst of the worst of trials. You see, when we sacrifice for God, it is for our long-term gain. We sacrifice the approval of others. We sacrifice wealth. We sacrifice sexual gratification outside of marriage. 
We sacrifice our time, which could be spent on Netflix and gaming, to go to church, to pray, to read the Bible. None of those sacrifices lead to our ultimate detriment, which all other idol worship does, but rather they lead to our ultimate good, getting us ready for eternity with him, purging us of hell's hold on us, making us truly free, ridding us of the slavery to sin. All other gods leave you a shell of a human, broken and in need of more. Our God never leaves you. And when you fail him, you end up with all your needs really met and fullness of life. Tim Keller, a theologian, once said, the living God who revealed himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross is the only Lord who, if you find him, you can truly fulfill you. And if you fail him, can truly forgive you. When we attach ourselves to Jesus and allow his life and his love to govern us, when we allow his word to change us and to shape us and his spirit to sanctify us and empower us, when we run to him when we've sinned and ask him to forgive us, then the fruit of Jesus, his likeness, it adorns us and we reflect his own being. And when he sees himself, the one of ultimate worth reflected in our lives, he is glorified. And the more bountiful the fruit, the more glorified he is in our lives. So what happens when the glory of God is sought by a community like this and held up as the highest purpose? We had our highest financial giving month that left, left you in suspense one two sorry that left you in suspense um, we had our highest financial giving month here at Citygate on record last month and I've I've been in this church for 20 years so that is incredibly significant. But why, what has that got to do with the glory of God? Well, why would a bunch of people give their hard-earned cash every month to a local church, so much so that even in a cost-of-living crisis, it's the highest giving month since records began? It happens when the worship of God is sought above the worship of money. Many of us have realized that money can be way more than just money. It can become a powerful, life-altering, culture-shaping God, an idol that breaks the hearts of its worshipers and whole societies. When God is glorified instead of money, then money stops being a master and is instead mastered and used to bring the kingdom of God into towns and societies, breaking the chains of injustice and systems of evil. That's what glorifying God in a community may look like. How about this? When people in marriages that are on the brink of breakdown seek help to stay together, it happens because the glory of God is sought above the glory of man. Who of your parents here today? When parents continue to love their children and do what's best for them and for their good, even when that child is running away from that good, 
That is where we give glory to God rather than giving in to a child's self-glorification, which leads to their ultimate destruction. When single people glorify God, they are caught up in the purposes of God for their lives, untethered by the things that others are, not seeing themselves as incomplete and not putting their lives on hold for when life apparently happens. Why? Because that's how Jesus lived his life. They are a beacon of hope to a confused world, a countercultural revelation displaying the glory of God. But all that is not done through willpower. It's putting yourself into the true vine, Jesus, who has been tempted in every way and come through, who is perfectly righteous and has fully glorified the Father through his death and resurrection. He is the power we need to live life. And when we're, when we're in him, when we're saturated in him, we become like him and we make value decisions like him. We start to desire what he desires and we stop getting entangled in the things that he never gets entangled in. And as we do this, we display the glory of God because Christ glorifies the Father and Christ-like followers glorify the Father. And all of this is for our good. We're going to come to a close there. I wonder if the band can come up. Um, we just want to create some time um, just for God to do what he wants to do, really, in this place. John Piper once said that the great tragedy of the world is not that the human race has failed to work for God so as to increase his glory, but that we have failed to delight in God so as to reflect his glory. You know, I started by saying that I've been a Christian since my early life, um, and I've known what it is to make, posture my life in a way that reflects God's glory. And I'm not super old, regardless of what my kids will tell you. Um, but I have been a Christian now for 34 years. And I can honestly say that every decision that I've made that has been made to bring glory to God rather than to myself or some other counterfeit has led to true freedom and fullness in my life. It's not maybe realized straight away or felt straight away, but genuinely from my personal experience and countless Christians the world over, they would say that when he is glorified in our lives, we are most satisfied. So the band are just going to play the song. Um, and so why don't we just stand together. But before we start singing a song which we know really well, I just wonder whether, just as they are singing... You could just take a moment right now and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you if there are any idols that you have inadvertently maybe even, but you've set them up in your heart. And then ask him to forgive you. And then ask him to dwell in you and empower you to repent. Repentance is a big word, but really what it means is turning away from that thing and running into the arms of a loving Father, the one who is ultimately good and does us good. That's repentance. 
And so right now, as, this, as the band sing, just do some business with God right here. And I believe God's going to dismantle some idols. And to be honest with you, I've been in, in places like this where we've gone, we've gone for that kind of stuff. And it's, it's never quiet and orderly. <laughs> and that's okay. We're just going to allow the Holy Spirit to do what He wants to do. For some of you, there might be some real pain involved in dismantling idols. And so that might be expressed here today. There might even be some demonic strongholds that need to be broken here. We're just going to be open to what the Holy Spirit does. He's doing our ultimate good here today for His glory. Prayer team, if you can just be ready and sensitive to what's happening in the room, really. I'm not going to necessarily call people out. We'll see how it goes. But just be aware of what's going on. And if someone needs prayer, if you can just put your hand up. Let's worship Him.